Okay, so you talked about a time when you had to have confidence. Was it the junior high dance when you had to walk across and ask a girl to dance? You were working it up. You were like, you went back in the back hall. You did push-ups to get yourself buff. And then you walked out. You tested your breath, the whole deal. Maybe it's a job interview. Maybe it was asking your wife to marry you. I don't know. Um, there's all kinds of times we have to have confidence. We're going to be talking about that this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 16 and 17. We're going to cover a ton of material this morning, but it should not take that long. I asked you to talk about a time that you were, that you had to have confidence, maybe that you were full of confidence. Now I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. I'm going to ask you to take your note sheet that you have, and on the front or in the back, anywhere you want to, I want you to write the first thing that comes to your mind when I say what I'm getting ready to say. Here we go. I want you to write down the prison that you're in. Just don't even think about it. Just write it down. Write down the prison that you are in. The prison that you are in. What is it that's happening in your life right now and you feel like you have no power to get out of it? You're stuck. The prison that you are in. If you've been with us over the last six months or so, then you know that we've been looking at the history of the early church, the way it's recorded in the book of Acts. Um, it's possible that you're here, um, that you would object even to taking any amount of time to look at a book in the Bible because you've bought the argument that the Bible's not reliable, that it's just another book on the shelf. Um, what, we, what we read there, we can't trust. It's just like Aesop's fables. So just before we even dive into Acts 16, let me just do this. I want to give you um, just three, only three reasons why I believe we can have confidence in the Bible. So when we read it, we're not just looking at a book, we're not just looking at stories, we can actually believe that this is from God to us. So bump the person next to you, because they're getting ready to hear reasons why they should believe the Bible is from God, not just from man. Um, hey, by the way, let me just say this too. If you are here, and you're a skeptic, you're not sure about Jesus, you're not sure about church, you're not sure about the Bible... You're in a great place, okay? Because we don't believe in brainwashing people, like cutting open your brain, lifting it up and pouring stuff in, putting it back, and you turn into like, you know, um, your eyes are glazed over and you just say the right thing all the time. We really believe in trying to understand things. We, we want you to learn. We want you to ask questions. So I want to give you this. Three reasons. Three reasons why we can have confidence in the Bible as the Word of God. And the great thing is, if you are a skeptic, not one of these reasons is going to sound like this. Because we just said so. Because I believe it. I have faith. That's not a good reason. Okay? Here's three reasons. These not in your notes. You can just jot them down if you want to. There is more manuscript evidence for the Bible than any other piece of literature ever recorded. Let me just make sure you understand what that means. That means that we can be more confident that the Bible is accurate than we can that Shakespeare's works are accurate. When I was youth pastoring, I used to tell our students, you want to start a fight in English class? And of course they're like, yeah. Just raise your hand when you're studying Shakespeare and just say to the teacher, I don't think Shakespeare even wrote this. I mean, she, her eyes or his, they would bug out, and just heads would start turning around, and like, like they spit stuff out, and fire, and guns, and it would be nasty bad in that classroom. But did you know there's more manuscript evidence that the Bible is accurate than there is in the works of Shakespeare? 
actually in the works of any of the things that we've read combined. There's more manuscript evidence for the Bible. Literary consistency. This is mind-blowing to me. Over 40 authors, you know that the Bible's not one book, right? The Bible's not one book. The Bible is a collection of 66 books. So there's 40 authors wrote 66 books on multiple continents over 1,500 years. And if you've read the Bible, like if you went through the 10 series or if you're reading through the E100 series right now, if you're doing these plans, one thing that you're noticing is, well, one thing you're noticing in the E100 is that the Old Testament, you're just like, can I please get to the New Testament, <laughs> right? But it's, there's a theme. There's like one theme of God's redemption that flows through all 66 of these books. That's mind-blowing to me, okay? We couldn't even pull that off in this room if I gave 10 of you a sheet of paper and a pen and just said, write for five minutes, which would have been fun to do this morning. Just write for five minutes, and then I just collect all the papers, and I just start with one, and I read all ten. How many of you know that there would be no continuity? One person would be writing about, you know, the person that shall go unnamed that I live with and I ate breakfast with this morning is a total jerk. And then the next one would be like, I got a puppy. Yeah, it did no continuity at all. But here's, here's the Bible, 66 books, 40 authors, 1,500 years, one common theme, God's redemption of man. There is literary consistency. And then last, there's more than that, but I'm just giving you three. Manuscript evidence, literary consistency. How about prophetic consistency? There are over 300 specific Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Over 300. That's impressive. Especially since we live in a time when meteorologists can't even get the weather right. They have state-of-the-art top of the line, fantastic technology, and they cannot even get a two or three day outlook correct. The Bible has 300 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus fulfilled in his life, death, and resurrection. All of them. Um, I used to, my big illustration with kids was you could just take eight of those prophecies, just eight, to have one man fulfill only eight, let alone all 300, but only eight, the probability of that happening is like filling the state of Texas with quarters one foot deep. Taking one quarter, marking an X on it, and throwing it in there. Taking a big stick, stirring the entire state of quarters, blindfolding one man, telling him you can walk as long as you want, anywhere you want within the state of Texas, but you can only bend over one time and pick up one quarter. The likelihood that he picks up the quarter with the red X is the same likelihood that one man fulfills eight prophecies, Jesus fulfilled 300. So when I read the Bible, when we read Acts, we're not reading fables. We're not reading stories. This is not something that you can, you don't have the luxury this morning of going, it's hot, it's muggy, it's raining, what he's saying, yeah, 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 doesn't even matter. We don't have that luxury because this is, these are words from God. Now you can blow me off, but we can't blow God off. So when we read this this morning, we know that we're reading something that God did for real at one point in history. And he is faithful to do the same thing for real today. Okay? You with me? Confidence in the Bible is a good thing. What we read is what we need. In this journey through Acts, we've called it Reacts. We can have confidence to read it and expect God to do the same for us that he did for them. So last week we talked about um, dead ends. Anybody face any dead ends this week? Mm-hmm. A couple of you. 
everybody, but only a few of you raised your hands. We talked about dead ends, and this week we're going to talk, um, we're going to pick up in Acts 16. This is right after Paul leaves Troas. That's what we talked about last week, and we'll just kind of, we're going to go, look, real quick, you've got three main points. I'm going to give you blanks to fill out, and then we're going to pray at the end, okay? Because what I want you to see is Paul, how many, how many of you saw the movie Groundhog Day? Paul's getting ready to live the movie Groundhog Day, okay? He's going to go to three cities. He's going to experience the exact same three things, the exact same things in all three cities, and he's going to think, I don't know what's going on, but I'm living the same day over and over and over again. Here we go. First thing he experienced, number one, Paul preached the gospel. Here's the three places that he preached it. In Philippi. In Philippi, Acts 16, 13, just jot these down, okay? Acts 16, 13. In Philippi, he preached it down by a river. I live in a van. Down by the river. Chris Farley. Acts 17, 2. In Thessalonica, he preached it in a synagogue. Acts 17, 10. In Berea, he preached in a synagogue again. Let me just give you a couple of observations about how Paul preaches the gospel. Everybody look at Acts 17, 2. He's in Thessalonica, and it says this, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Here was Paul's pattern, always preaching the gospel. It was a predictable pattern. It was his custom to enter the synagogue. Paul was intentional about preaching the gospel. It was his first step, not his last. Let me ask you some questions. Are you intentional about preaching the gospel. Well, no, because I'm not a preacher. You're the preacher. Are you intentional about sharing the gospel, about talking about Jesus? Do we leave it up to other people to do that? Have we developed a pattern in our lives? Do we intentionally make opportunities to share the good news about Jesus? Or do we just wait for opportunities? Make opportunities to share the gospel. It's that important. Paul preached the gospel. He preached it everywhere. Number two, the gospel caused reactions. Here's the Groundhog Day. No matter where Paul went, whether it was Philippi, whether it was Thessalonica, whether it was Berea, wherever Paul went, he experienced the same two things. Write these, these down. He experienced converts, and he experienced conflicts. He experienced converts and conflicts. Just real quick, let me show you how this plays out in Philippi. Acts chapter 16 and verse 11. The converts, Lydia and her household. We see that in Acts 16 verses 14 through 15. In, in Philippi, and in, a jailer in his household, they're converted. We see that in Acts 16, 29 through 34. So he's in Philippi. He goes down to the river. He meets a woman named Lydia. She gets converted. Because he, he meets a woman named Lydia and she gets converted, later on he, you'll see a conflict where he casts out a demon from a woman who is making a man a buttload of money because she's got a demon. And they get thrown in jail. In jail, the jailer gets converted. But he experienced conflicts. What is his conflict? Duh. They got thrown in prison. Acts 16, 16 through 40. So in Philippi, he sees converts. He sees conflict. He leaves there. He goes to Thessalonica. He sees converts. Acts 17, verse 4. It says that some Jews and many God-fearing Greeks were converted. They believed. And he sees conflict. A mob forms in Acts 17, verses 5 through 9. A mob forms to get Paul and Silas out. 
They can't find Paul and Silas, so they go and they grab the guy that they're staying with and they yank him out and they throw him in jail. Because that's what mobs do, right? They don't think straight. They just want to get somebody. So he's in Philippi, converts, conflicts. He leaves there. He goes to Thessalonica, converts, conflict. He goes to Berea, Acts 17, 12. It says that many Jews and prominent Greek women and men believed. He sees converts. And he sees conflict in Berea as well because the troublemakers from Thessalonica, like, well, we couldn't get you there, so we'll follow you down to Berea and we'll get you there. They show up and they cause conflict. Here's some observations to write down. Number one, tons of different people get converted. Look around the room. Go ahead, spin your head around the room. Look, lots of different people in the place, right? And if you're honest, these are the kind of people that you thought would never get saved. You thought would never, you would never be in a church with people like this. But what I love about this the, the converts, tons of different people get converted. Greeks get converted. Jews get converted. Women get converted. A jailer got converted. Now turn to a couple, just a couple of verses. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 11 and 13. These are, these are chapters, these are verses that Paul wrote later in his life. Thinking back, I got to believe, thinking back on what he experienced in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Greeks, Jews, women, jailers, men, they're all converted. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verses 11 through 13. No, he did not write there at all. all right, go to Galatians 3.28. Sorry. Galatians 3.28. I could read you Romans 11, but it'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. It is good. Galatians 3.28. Paul writes this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul and Silas found themselves in conflict. Let me, why? Because they stood for the gospel. They found themselves thrown in prison because they stood for the gospel. What I love about Acts, when they get thrown in prison, is that their conflict opens the door for somebody else's conversion. Acts chapter 16. They're in jail. They're delivered. Angel shows up. Chains fall off. The doors fly open. And they can run out as fast as they want to, and they stay there. Because they know if they leave, then the jailer is going to kill himself because he's going to be killed if they're gone. Because in that day, you, you guard the jail. If the prisoner gets away, you're held accountable with your life. That would be a great way to hold people accountable at their job, wouldn't it? Hey, did you get those copies made? No. People would work a lot harder. But they stay in jail. They don't run away. They call out, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, verse 29. Acts 16, verse 29. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Did you write down what prison you're in? What prison are you in right now? Look at what you wrote down. Did you know that how you handle yourself in that prison 
could be the very door that opens for somebody else to be converted. What's your prison? I don't have a job. Okay. Well, we talk about Jesus providing for us, right, all the time, and typically we do that because we have a job. God will provide as soon as my boss gives me the check. And then when the check's gone, the world watches us, and they see how we'll respond in that moment. And how we respond in that prison could be the door that opens to somebody else's conversion. Paul and Silas could have run away. They did not. Paul and Silas did not enjoy their freedom while leaving others in captivity. Paul and Silas prayed about midnight, verse 25. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Praise is a powerful weapon when we're caught in the conflict that the gospel brings. If the prison you wrote down is something that's related to you taking a stand for the gospel, guess what your best weapon is? Praise. Your best weapon in that place is to say, God, no matter what's taking place in my life, you are still worthy. You are still holy. You have not changed. They praised at the worst possible time. I mean, it's hot in here for me this morning. This is not the most comfortable place to be, but this is nothing like what they experienced. It's muggy in here this morning. Maybe you're tired. I know you're tired. You've been at the Speedway. Maybe there's a lot going on. And we come into church and go, I, I just don't, I don't feel it today. Let me ask you this. Let me just read to you what happened to Paul and Silas, and you tell me if they felt it, okay? Verse 22, Acts 16. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped. Everybody's clothed. I'm just making sure. They were naked and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, do you know what flogging is? Within, you ever heard the southern expression, I'm going to beat you within an inch of your life? That's flogging. Ripping parts of their body out. They were thrown into prison. The jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them into an inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. How do you feel today? How do we feel today? It's been a long weekend. Stripped, beaten, severely flogged, thrown into the inner part of the prison, feet fastened in the stocks, and it was midnight, verse 25, midnight, not the best time of the day, the worst time of the day, about midnight, their response to all of that was praying and singing hymns to God. What's your prison? What is your prison this morning? How do we respond in that place? Paul and Silas praised and were not only set free themselves, but so was everyone else. Jot this down. It may be on your sheet. Praise has nothing to do with where we are and everything to do with whose we are. Why were they able to praise at midnight after being severely beaten, flogged, put into stocks? Because their circumstance changed, where they were changed, but whose they were never changed. They said, man, God, you're still worthy. We're still going to praise you. Our only hope is to praise you because we're sitting in a prison and we're surrounded by an environment that we have no control over, that we cannot change. The only person we know that can take care of this is you. And so we're going to praise you now. 
The gospel causes reactions. It causes converts. It causes conflict. How do we respond in the conflict? A couple of questions for us to think about. Are we experiencing conflict in our lives as a result of standing for the gospel or as a result of fighting against the gospel? I don't know. Maybe, I'm, maybe it's just me. I've experienced conflict in my life because of the gospel, but not because of what Paul and Silas did. I've experienced conflict in, the, in my life because of the gospel because I fought against the gospel. I don't, want, I don't want that God. I don't want that God. I don't want to go all in. Now, that will cause conflict, right? But even when you go all in, there's still conflict. They're in jail because they preach the gospel. So just because we're in conflict, because some of us will walk out today because you're like me. Well, I'm in conflict in my life right now, so I must be in a good place. Maybe. Sometimes we experience conflict because we're not doing the things that God's called us to do. Paul and Silas, did what they, they did what they were called to do. They were in conflict as a result. Are we using our freedom for ourselves or are we using others to see our freedom to see others set free also? Galatians chapter 5. Verses 13 and 14. Just read it to you real quick. This is what Paul said. And I love, again, the fact that Paul wrote these things. I, I read what he wrote here, and I just think this is a man who, when he wrote these words, is, he's got to be thinking back to prison. He's got to be thinking back. Hey, remember that time that we were in prison? It was about midnight. We were so tired. But we went ahead and praised, and we sang, and we prayed, and God delivered us. Remember how? Remember that? Silas, how all the stuff fell off, and we could just walk out if we wanted to, and we didn't because we wanted to make sure the jailer was okay and he wouldn't kill himself. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. He's thinking back on it, and this is what he writes: Galatians chapter five, verses thirteen and fourteen. He says, "You, my brothers, were called to be free. Remember that, Silas? Remember when the chains fell off? Oh yeah." But don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. What prison are you in? If in a moment the chains just fell off and you were free, is it a prison you just run from as fast as you possibly could and never look back? Or do you start asking God, why am I here? What are you, what are you teaching me in this place? What, what can I do here? You, oh, you just set me free. Thank you, Jesus. I'm free. But can you set him free too? Could you, could, I'll stay if you'll set him free or her free. Did you see how so indulgent we become? I want this my way. I just want out. Who cares if everybody else is still in? Do we use our freedom for ourselves or do we use it to see others free as well? Are we able to give God praise because he never changes even if everything changes around us? So Paul preaches the gospel. The gospel causes reactions. And the third point is just, I don't want you to miss it. It's really simple, but Paul preached the gospel anyway. So he preaches the gospel, and when he preaches the gospel, he experiences two things every single time. Every single time he experiences converts and he experiences conflict. Usually the converts come first, 
And then the conflicts come. So whenever he's done in one city, what's he remembering? Probably the whipping he just got. And then Paul, because either he really believes this stuff or he is totally insane, he goes to another city and repeats the process. He preaches the gospel anyway. This is the point, I believe, that can help us leave with a lot of hope. Okay, so let me make sure I communicate this very clearly. Paul preached. Every preached, he sees converts, he sees conflicts, and he preaches again. Is he crazy? What allows a man to experience such violent reactions and then continue to do the very same things that will cause those violent reactions again? Only one thing I can think of. He had confidence. Paul had confidence. Um, he did not have confidence that we read about in self-help books. He did not go to a seminar on confidence. Um, I've got a picture of, I love demotivators. Do you know what demotivators are? Yeah, I love them. If you don't know what they are, just there's a website called Despair Incorporated. Um, it's despair.com and they have a line called demotivators. They also have a new line called Illboards, which I love. So they put these things on billboards. But I'm gonna read it to you because it's hard to see. At the top of this, this is obviously a really steep cliff and that's a skier at the top looking awesome i might add and it says confidence and it just says if you believe in yourself you can achieve this is not the kind of confidence that paul had he did not look at an impossible situation and say i have the power to do anything right this is this is human psychology this is human confidence this is what we've been we've been sold this this is a bunch of bull Okay, so let me tell you what Paul did not have confidence in. He did not have confidence in his ability to preach well. This gives me so much hope because I don't think I preach well. First Corinthians, I mean, I, I, t I totally took you to a verse that wasn't even the verse I was supposed to take you to. It's terrible. First Corinthians chapter 2. This is Paul. This is how much confidence he had in his ability to preach. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I read that and go, hallelujah, there's hope for me. Right? I do not have eloquence. I definitely don't have superior wisdom. I don't think I have wisdom. So, I mean, let alone enough to put, like, superior in front of. For I resolve, verse 2, to know nothing. I resolve to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. I love this. When I read, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling, I, I just, I always think of, you know, how funny it is when I was on the road and I, you drive up in like the little Ford Taurus. It's like, here comes the mighty man of power, right? <laughs> little Ford Taurus. Your car breaks down. It's like, you just feel that way. I mean, the message of God is so powerful. There's so much hope in the gospel. And sometimes this is our testimony. Now, listen, we're not talking about a man who said, oh, yeah, I got confidence in me. He had no confidence in his ability to communicate well. Don't take confidence in your ability. Paul also had no confidence in his possessions. He didn't have confidence in his preaching. 
He did not have confidence in his possessions. Here's what he thought about the things that he had in his life. Philippians 3, verse 7 and 8. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. I love he considered them rubbish, which is the nice word for the actual word that was meant in the Greek. He considered everything in his life a big pile of poo so that he might gain Christ. So I want to make sure you understand this correctly because I believe what I want you to walk out of here today with, I want you to walk out with confidence. I, 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 not in me, I, not in your ability to communicate. I don't want you to walk out with confidence in your what you own. Well, if I can just get enough stuff, then you know my life's going to be fixed. Or if I could just learn more, if I could just say more, if I could just work it up, if somehow I could just be that junior high kid doing push-ups back in the hall so I look like I got muscles before I ask that girl to dance. That's not what this is about. This is not about bringing a band up and working you up into a frenzy so you walk out. Because, you know, that's not confidence. All that is is adrenaline. Paul didn't have confidence in any of that. All of that actually is sitting in the big pile of poo. Because if you read the things that he did, that's what he did. I was the best Pharisee. I was the most religious. I was the most dedicated. I was all those things. But he didn't take confidence in any of that. I don't want you walking out of here taking confidence in that. What I want you walking out of here taking confidence in is the same thing that Paul had confidence in. He had confidence in the power of the gospel to save souls and to lead us to victory. Paul was convinced in the power of the gospel. Not himself. Do you know what I'm convinced of? I'm convinced at the gathering that if we are faithful to teach the gospel, that our church will grow. I'm convinced that if the hope of our church growing rests on my shoulders to be a really awesome communicator, we are doomed. Even if I was good, and I'm not. If it relies on me to work you into a frenzy, we're doomed. If you're waiting on that, stop wasting your time. Find another church. But if we preach the gospel, there's power in the gospel to save. There's power in the gospel to lead us to victory. Um, we're wrapping it up. Last week we talked about Paul being led through dead ends, being funneled to the coastal town of Troas. And um, one of the things that we learned last week was that at a place, it was a place of trial for Paul because we read a verse that said he was struggling with what God's plans were on the way to Troas and even in Troas. Okay, so we're going to read this again. We're going to put it up there in a minute. Um, one of the lessons he learned was that, you know, God leads us where we are so he can lead us where we aren't. But he learned another lesson in Troas as he left it, and that's the big idea for today, the shortest one we've ever had. 
the gospel wins. That's the lesson he learned as he left Troas. The gospel wins. Well, I mean, I've been in prison. Yeah, the gospel wins. I got beaten and flogged. Yeah, but the gospel wins. Well, I shared Jesus, and like Lydia got saved, and then they they threw me out of town. Yeah, and the gospel wins. Something else that Paul wrote as later in his life, he's thinking back over, I believe, this period of his life when he was funneled to Troas and when he was funneled out of Troas. And what we're reading today is the first three stops that he took after he left Troas. So he's leaving that place like, God, why am I here? We talked about that last week. He gets on a boat. He goes to Macedonia. And the first three places that he goes are what we just talked about this morning. He goes to Philippi, he goes to Thessalonica, he goes to Berea. And he experiences the same thing. All three places. Well, I preached. It was awesome. Some people got converted. And then there was a lot of conflict. And later in his life, he's thinking back over this period. And he writes the words that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 12 to 14. I really want to make sure you get this and then we'll be done. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my, bro my brother Titus there. So we talked about that last week, that Troas, this place when we find ourselves in dead ends, and we're kind of like, what, what am I supposed to do? You know, we're supposed to actually be a little bit confused. We're not supposed to actually feel good in those places. It's not fun to hit dead ends. And Paul, thank goodness, Paul's honest, and he says it right there. Like, I know I'm in Troas because God funneled me here, but I got no peace here. I'm alone here. I don't like it here. We talked about that last week, okay? You with me so far? Okay. <clears throat> so then he says, so I said goodbye to them and went, went on to Macedonia. Because in, this, in these two or th three verses, I mean, we're summing up two or three chapters in Acts in these verses here. So he's, he, I'm in Troas. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm in Troas. I didn't want to be in Troas, but God led me here. And now that I'm here, I got no peace. I'm just waiting on God. I'm trusting on God. And he's apparently opened the door to Macedonia. So I said goodbye to everybody in Troas, and I went to Macedonia. And now in verse 14, he writes in one verse the lesson he learned in Macedonia. And you've got to get this, okay? I, got, I, mean, I feel like I've done a horrible job getting you to this place, but please at least get this, okay? Here's what he learned in the cities that he traveled through in Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always, somebody say always, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Somebody say always. He always leads us to triumph. That's what he learned. What's your prison? Do you know that the gospel wins enough that whatever your prison is you wrote down, he always leads us to triumph. He always leads us to victory. So I don't care how you get out of that prison, how you get through that prison, but that prison can't stop you from winning. Because he always, always leads us to victory. There's not a single time if we follow Jesus that the gospel does not win.
Because he always leads us to victory. The gospel wins. No matter what we face, we can have confidence that we're being led to victory. Sometimes through conversions, sometimes through conflicts, but always. Everybody say always. Always to victory. And why is that? Why can we have confidence that we're always being led to victory? Three simple words. The gospel wins. Let me just sum this up by saying before I started teaching, Connie came up and just put this on the stand. It just says this. Maybe I would have done better just reading this and us going home. I don't know, but it was perfect. People living in fear, doubt, and unbelief. Take us out of our minds and into Jesus' mind. Just curious. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you wrote a prison that is related to fear, doubt, or unbelief? Raise your hand. Yeah. It is the greatest weapon Satan has. Satan is so good at playing mind games and convincing us of things that can never even happen. Let me, I'm going to let you walk out hearing this, okay? We don't do benedictions a lot because that's... Anyway, but this is a great one. Scripture speaks so well. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Paul wrote this. What then shall we say in response to this? In response to what? In response to the prison that you wrote down. What shall we say in response to that? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give to us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us, is also interceding for me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things, not from all these things, not apart from all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul had confidence, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel wins every single 